My name is Paula Lorraine. I am a journalist, and I'm going to be moderating the next sort of debate on the question, so what have we learned since 1943? Not only um, what have we learned from the experiences that went on in Denmark at that time, but in Europe as a whole, what have we learned uh, after the Holocaust? Um, we have a lot of horrible experiences. We have some positive experiences inside the horrible experiences, uh, mainly what we are celebrating after 70 years now, uh, what happened in 43. Um, with Danes rescuing Jews, their countrymen, as uh, somebody said here uh, in the other session. The learning of history is always a dis good discussion, something that we always take, but have we learned something? What have we learned? And have we also unlearned some things in the 70 years that, that have passed? These are the questions that are going to be answered by two speakers that I'm very proud to present. One of them is a politician that many of you, if you live in Denmark, know very well. His name is Søren Pitt, and he is a former minister and a, a, a very, I know him personally, he's a very passionate, a very wise politician that also has more than just what a politician does, he also thinks. Um, which is uh, quite nice, I think. <laughs> but you're free to do so here and, uh, and teach us about it. And the other thing is um, that I want to present you for a person that I only just met today, but what Manfred doesn't know is that I've followed your work, Manfred, for 20 years, I think, because the first time I saw your name was during uh, the Bosnian War, for your special uh, rapporteur for uh, the UN, and uh, had the responsibility to track and record all the things that were happening in a war that I covered as a journalist, as a young diplomatic correspondent, and as a young ed editor at that time. So I do remember you uh, from that time, and I've followed you since. So when I saw your name, I knew exactly who you were. Uh, and you have worked with human rights as a professor, and as a, your profession for so many years that you can answer these questions even though they're very difficult and you will be the first one to give us your 10 minutes uh, of answering this question and then we'll give the floor to something. But first, please welcome Professor Manfred Novak. Uh, thanks very much, Paula. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to try to answer this fairly difficult question, did Europe learn? And I would perhaps put it in a somewhat broader perspective, did the international community learn, but then focusing on Europe? Yes, we learned. I think there's a clear answer. Um, both World War II and the Holocaust have been a paradigm shift. For the first time in the history of humankind, wars have been outlawed by international law. Many people don't know that, but until World War II, it was perfectly legitimate and legal under international law. If you couldn't solve your conflicts with peaceful measures, you just could use armed conflict. This is now prohibited with only two exceptions, self-defense and the collective security system of the United Nations. Secondly, human rights didn't play any role at the international level until the Holocaust. It was always seen 
think about the Armenian Holocaust uh, uh, genocide, think about many, many gross and systematic violations of human rights. It was always said this is a domestic issue. The international community has no right to intervene into national sovereignty. Again, that changed because of the Holocaust. So for the first time in history, uh, the United Nations and many other regional organizations said clearly international peace and security, development, and human rights are our main goals and objectives. Kofi Annan has put it very, very beautifully in 2005 by saying, but these are also interrelated. There won't be any security without development, any development without security, but we will not enjoy either of them without a solid protection of human rights. So human rights at the basis for both development and security. Um, in the meantime also, um, and, and of course the United Nations developed um, <coughs> many universal human rights treaties. We can say today it's the only universe, uh, universally accepted value system of our time. Many treaties have been ratified and accepted as legally binding by more or less all countries in the world. And recently, also since 2005, we have the concept of the responsibility to protect, even saying that the Security Council has a specific responsibility to protect people against genocide, ethnic cleansing, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. We will see how it works in practice. Now, coming to Europe, Europe also learned its lesson. Already in 1949, the Council of Europe was created and became the pioneer of the international protection of human rights with its flagship, the European Court of Human Rights, 800 million people from uh, Reykjavik to Vladivostok actually are members of the Council of Europe. They can lodge a direct individual complaint to the permanent European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. Uh, and there are many other ways of protecting human rights within the uh, Council of Europe based on those common European values, the pluralist democracy, the rule of law and human rights. The European Union or the European communities were created primarily again to prevent a third world war by means of economic integration. But in the meantime, it was transformed into a political union again based on the same European values, democracy, human rights, the rule of law, liberty, and the protection of minorities. And thirdly, we also had the CSCE, later OSCE, which played a fairly important catalyst role in also uh, facilitating the implosion of the uh, Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. So quite much, I think more than in any other region of the world, has been done in order to establish organizations that are quite effective in dealing with security matters, but also human rights matters. Did we succeed in practice? So we learned certainly, but how effective uh, are we? And I would say again, uh, we shouldn't be too critical. A third world war so far has been avoided. There were many, of course, civil wars and also a few interstate wars, but in principle, uh, and it is also not conceivable anymore within Europe, primarily between Germany and France, 
but in general that among European nations there would be another uh, interstate war. And I would also say that the danger of genocide and similar gross and systematic violations of human rights within Europe has become fairly small. Of course, also within the Council of Europe, there were gross and systematic violations of human rights. Think about the Greek military dictatorship in the late 1960s. Think about the Turkish military dictatorship in the early 1980s. Um, think about what's going on in Russia today. Um, that's true. Um, but, uh, but still, I think the mechanisms are working uh, quite well. The big no is that uh, Europe is based, and we discussed it already before, um, on a policy of uh, dealing with non-European citizens, so third country nationals, in a fairly xenophobic until racist way, very restrictive migration and refugee policies, and that is reacting primarily to far right-wing populist parties. We have rising, in particular after the end of the Cold War, rising nationalism, racism, uh, anti-Semitism. If you think today about the situation uh, in, in the Russian Federation, if you think in, in Hungary, in Greece, and in many other countries. But for me, the most important development that really changed my positive attitude, I was born shortly after World War II. The Holocaust was in all our minds, coming from Austria, which portrayed itself as a victim, but in reality was a perpetrator. Um, so it was a very, very important issue to deal with the legacy of the Holocaust. So I was personally 100% convinced that another genocide in Europe would be impossible. There was one in Cambodia, and. Uh, in Rwanda, but uh, in, in Europe it would be impossible. So when I heard of the first ethnic cleansing operations of, the, of Serbia against Croatia in 1991, I simply did not want to believe it. I worked at that time in the United Nations, in the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, etc. I just thought this cannot be true anymore. And then I got more and more involved. Uh, in 1992, the ethnic cleansing operations started. Uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We did uh, a lot of uh, scientific research into Zvornik, for instance, and then I was uh, appointed by the United Nations as UN expert on missing persons in former Yugoslavia. We had about 20,000 people uh, missing in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina alone. We had about 300 mass graves, and I was very much involved in starting to open uh, these mass graves and saw all that exactly 50 years after the Holocaust, a genocide again happened in Europe, and Europe was standing by and failed to prevent it or to stop it. It needed the United States of America. And Bill Clinton always said, we are the world police anyway. We're dealing with Haiti, we deal with Cambodia, we deal with Somalia, whatever. So this is a European problem. The Europeans should solve it. But Europe was falling back in 19th century thinking of, uh, 
of alliances between Britain and Serb and France and, and the Serbs and the Germans and Croats, etc. And that created a situation where Europe was unable or unwilling to act. And it was the Americans who finally, much, much too late, after the genocide in Srebrenica, actually started with the Dayton Peace Agreement and really forced a peace upon the three warring factions in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So this was for me a very, very kind of eye-opening experience um, so that um, you cannot be 100% sure uh, that by means of awareness raising, learning from history, you can prevent another genocide. If there is a political situation, and that was at that time in ex-Yugoslavia, uh, where you have no, demo uh, no democratic traditions, where people are very quickly, like Milosevic is a very good example, moving from a communist into a nationalist or racist, uh, where you have no free press and all the political propaganda, you can actually manipulate people that they finally kill their neighbors, as was the case in Rwanda. In Rwanda, where 800,000 people were killed by their neighbors with machetes. You don't need gas chambers. You can commit genocide by machetes if the manipulation is there and if there is no free press, etc. So that's why I think the most important lesson that we have to learn is that uh, what the Germans call, and the Germans introduced in the Bonner Grundgesetz, they call streitbare Demokratie, wäret den Anfängen. So whenever we are confronted with hate speech today, whether it's Islamophobia, homophobia, anti-Semitism, all forms of racism that we find in many European countries, against the Roma, for instance, against minorities, against Africans, uh, etc., that we should act very, very, at an early stage, because otherwise it's too late, at an early stage to combat hate speech and also, if necessary, prohibit political parties that are advocating racial hatred or religious hatred and violence. And I think that's, for me, the most important conclusion that we should draw and I just come from Vienna. We had uh, our national elections last Sunday. And much what the right-wing parties actually said was, in my opinion, hate speech already. And they were winning altogether about 30% of the votes. So this is for me. Uh, and it's not only Austria. You have that in, in, in quite a number of countries. If you look into the present situation in Hungary, I think the European Union, the Council of Europe, and other states should take much stronger action in relation to this form of hate speech uh, that, uh, and, and, and hate speech and, and, and violence on the basis of racism uh, and in particular what's going on in the Russian Federation uh, in relation to uh, gays, lesbians, transgender people, etc. So there are many groups that are targeted today uh, because of intolerance and I think that is what we still have to do much more than we have done in the past. Thank you very much. Where would I be without you, Paula, or my mother? But anyway, thank you for inviting me, Anna also. I've been looking forward to this. 
Um, this summer I went to Bavaria. I took my two children on a pilgrimage. It's a strange expression to use. But we went to Munich. And we went to Augsburg. And we went to Nuremberg. And we went to Dachau. And of course, we also went to Bayreuth. And I think in all these cities and all these places, I refreshed my memories of what was and what is. Because seeing these things through two small children's eyes, and if there are any journalists here, I would ask that they do not, uh, refer this story because when I tell about my children I would like to, to stay here please they are 6 and 10 years old was an extreme eye opener for me and opened up some thoughts on how perversely strong some of the messages from the Nazi period actually are still today We think that we have learned, and I'm actually an optimist, I think we have learned. But we must never forget the power and the strength which came from this movement, and the use it made of the absolute darkness among people. My oldest son when we walked into the stadium of Nuremberg, could still see the epic greatness of it all. He could see the marching stormtroopers, the flags waving, and at a certain point he asked me, what did the Jews actually do wrong? And I looked at him and I said, you know, they didn't do anything. Oh, but Father, they must have done something. And in front of me stood this very hard task of explaining to him that that was actually not the case. That actually nothing had been done. And that actually these people were taken away not because of anything they had done, not because of anything they had said, but only because of whom and what they were. And then he said to me, well, I'm not one of them. And I looked at him and I said, well, maybe not. But you know what? They also took the handicapped and they took the politicians. No, father, you would not have been taken. You're not one of them. And I said, actually, son, I'm a handicapped and I'm a liberal politician. I would for sure have been taken. And then I did this. And he still didn't understand. So at a certain point, I had to take the lowest trick I know in the book. I had to say, do you, do you remember Samuel, who's moving to London with his father and his mother? because he's starting on the Danish embassy in London. 
Yes, I know Samuel. He's my friend. You like Samuel? Very much indeed. Actually, I'm very sad that he's leaving. Well, did you know that Samuel was a Jew? What? But he's like me. That's what I'm saying. And then he understood. But I had to walk him through it all. And I had to do it in steps because each time we had this discussion, I didn't know what to say. And when we went to Dachau, I walked with a small one, hand in hand. He looked at all the pictures and he said to me, you know, Father, I don't think I would have been able to resist because I was too small. But I hope if I had been a grown-up that I would have done something. And then, of course, I was completely finished. <laughs> and I hugged him and told him I was very proud of him. But that was, to me, worth the whole trip. Absolutely all of it. But it told me again how important it is that we remember and that we try to explain. And then on the other hand, what was very symbolic to me was that, of course, this trip went to Germany. And if you look at Germany, if you look at the elections that have just been in Germany, if you look at the political climate in Germany, if you look at how German politicians behave, if you look at how they do things, there you see a change. You see an amazing change. This is a dangerous thing to say because I do believe very firmly, I do not know what Kredigans book is named in English. Anybody knows? Predigons book. Excuse me? Ecclesiastics, thank you. It is said that everything that has happened will happen again, and I actually do believe that. Because humankind in that way is terrible. We lack the ability to see if things are happening again, because they always change, their character change. The Norwegian philosopher Knausgård says that next time evilness will come, it will come in the shape of somebody we love. I do deeply believe that he's right. But I don't think Holocaust will happen in Germany again. I deeply, and I say it with that just being said about that everything that has happened will happen again. I do not believe that it will happen in Germany again. And therefore, I think Europe has learned. And I think that in the days just after, in the painful aftermath where people had to look at each other and know that they didn't actually do anything, and they knew, I think that uh, a new kind of idealism spread. And I do not know whether the danger comes from there. And the professor asked me whether we, he hoped that we, were seeing, we would find things to disagree upon. I think we will. <laughs> because as we went through this very idealistic period, 
with its focusing, with its focus on enlarging the human rights movement, where I also find myself, because I believe in the fundamental human rights. But this movement of enhancing the human rights, making it an, an ever larger thing with more aspects, more rights, more beliefs, is by many seen as a threat to their culture. And I think that's, that, that's where the next clash will come, and it is already coming. When I visited the United States, together with an infamous character in Denmark, almost like me, <laughs> but with very long hair, I've just had a haircut, I'm very happy about it. Um, some Americans said to me about, for instance, the Danish immigration debate, why don't you just become like us? And I said to them, well, because we actually like it. We actually like what and who we are and where we are. And by the way, you had to kill the Indians to get where you are. <laughs> and I think that we should have also a discussion on, um, on an ideology in reality, which preaches multiculturalism all over the world and also into the nations themselves. Because we cannot avoid the fact the large majorities in Europe, in their separate countries, actually like their way of life. And we do not, we as world society, or we as Europe as one, we do not necessarily have the right to change their right to live in societies they like. And this is why I do believe that we might have forgotten that one of the aspects of Holocaust actually was to try to kill a certain culture. We do not respect cultures today. And we should. And we should give people the right to have their culture respected with respect to the fundamental human rights. I think that would be my point right now. Thank you. Thank you, sir, on this uh, very good speech. And you said that you were going to disagree with uh, Manfred on, on certain things, and I heard many, or at least a few, things that we might uh, be able to discuss today. You mentioned hate speech and uh, the extreme right in Europe and the movement uh, of the extreme right, um, and you mentioned multiculturalism, um, which is part of that discussion as well and also the fundamental right that um, we still are protecting, the rights uh, to speak freely. Uh, also when it comes to something that we don't like, or other cultures that we don't like. So um, I see that this is, uh, this is the core of uh, what we are now, because is it coming as a, another form? Is the paradigm shifting again? So actually we're not going to see the same historic thing that we saw uh, in the 40s, in the 30s and the 40s, but actually we're going to see it in a new, in a new form and it's going to surprise us because we're so idealistic in our uh, thought about every culture living together and being happy together. Manfred, how do you, how do you respond to uh, the, the speech that John just gave? Um, I think <coughs> um, 
it's just the fact that we are living in a global world and uh, it was not primarily pushed by the human rights movement, it was pushed by neoliberalism and, uh, uh, and, and global markets uh, that we are living in a, in a multinational, multicultural, multi-religious environment, whether we like it or not. Um, and um, multiculturalism doesn't mean uh, nihilism. It doesn't mean that uh, you should uh, actually forget about your own culture, your own religion. It just asks a lot of us, of all of us, to be tolerant. Um, to be tolerant towards other cultures, towards other religions uh, in living together. It doesn't mean that uh, there will be one huge global culture. Uh, of course, there is a lot of influence by, in particular, uh, the, the economic way of, of globalization, uh, the Coca-Cola culture and this kind of McDonald's culture, but, uh, uh, but that's something else. But I think in, in principle, um, we should be open uh, to, uh, in particular, refugees. We heard a lot about the way how Jewish refugees from Denmark, for instance, have been treated in Sweden uh, in the 1940s. Uh, my own country uh, was once known as a very, very um, um, a country where refugees were welcome. 200,000 Hungarians came to Austria in 1956. Uh, 100,000 Czechoslovakians in 1968 after the uh, Prague Spring was collapsing, uh, 35,000 uh, Polish people in the 1980s, and even after the end of the, uh, the Cold War, quite many people came to Austria. But of course we knew at that time that there were the Americans and the Canadians and the uh, New Zealand, Australia, immigration countries who would actually finally take them. So we, was a, we were a country of first asylum. But just in that time we were extremely poor. In 1956 Austria was very poor and people were helping those 200,000 Hungarians to provide them shelter and food and etc. If I see today the hatred against refugees coming from Syria, coming from Somalia, coming from Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc. Uh, we are one of the most affluent countries in the world. Uh, but there is so much hatred. We are seeing seen refugees as a security threat, not as people in need of protection. I think that's what I mean with uh, uh, the influence of, uh, of right-wing uh, and partly neo-Nazi uh, xenophobic parties uh, in, in, in seeing immigration as such, not as an asset. We are, Europe is a society uh, which has, from, from a demographic point of view, we have a slowly reducing population growth. We need immigration, we need those people in order to pay pensions, etc. So it is, it is a, a very irrational policy and very much is this, we want to keep our own culture uh, and, and, and that's why this is all seen as a old kind of migration seen as a threat to our, to our own culture. I think we can keep our culture. 
at the same time also respecting that others have a different culture and religion, but also living in Austria and Denmark. So I almost don't need to ask you a question because I know you disagree in the core of this, uh, what Mepha says. At least you've been a minister, an integration minister of a government that historically was the government that shut down our borders in some places uh, compared at least to the, the past. Uh, so how do you respond to this uh, view? Well, actually, that's not true. My government ended up being the government in Danish history that opened up for most people coming into the... Okay, yes, relatively. Uh, so, so, so that's actually not true. But of course we changed the character of who we're coming. And uh, I would say, I, I, I disagree, for instance, on, on... I think it would be very hard to find statistical uh, material that uh, says that for instance, refugees from Palestine, Syria, or other third world countries start with contributing to their new countries. And I actually discussed this with Guterres, uh, who said to me that what we have forgotten in the political debate is that refugees are actually very vulnerable and are people who are hurt, who are hurt and who actually, in some aspects, lack the ability of blending into society. And instead of, with all due respect, phrases of people coming and contributing, we should actually instead be honest about the fact that first generations refugees of the kind that you're speaking of, I do not speak about uh, uh, people from Hungary coming to their neighboring country or Swedes coming to Denmark or Danes coming to Sweden because, I mean, that is, even though it's complicated, it is still a task that is manageable. But if you lack the understanding of the cultural clashes with people from very different background, added to the fact that they come with big hurts, I think that you will not have an honest debate. And I think this should be said. I myself argue that we should also bear the burden that it is. But we should be honest about it. Um, and on the other hand, I would also say that I think, even though you call them right wing, uh, I wouldn't go into the neo Nazis. That I don't think. I think actually, what you see in, for instance, uh, Greece, democracy is actually reacting towards it. They are being closed down, and that is what we have learned. And I think that's good. Uh, but I think that um, if we do not take into account that people will help, but they will not help to an amount where they see, they at least perceive a threat to the way they live, then they won't help. And you can, of course, make fun of this. Uh, no, I, I ironize about it. I actually, I, I don't think you make fun of it. You, you. You don't like the point of view very much. But I would say that when I was Minister of Development, which I also was, that was in, in, in this um, aspect that I talked to Guterres in Geneva. When I traveled around the world, especially in Africa and Asia, what I saw was the fundamental, most important fact if you wanted to change people's lives for the better. That was the cultural aspect. And if we don't respect the culture, and if we don't, if, if it is necessary, try to move the culture, then nothing will be done. This is what everything revolves around. So that was actually be my point, and I think that if you ask people to receive 
and help so many people that they will see a threat to their own culture, then, then things will not go very well. Is it a too provocative question to ask, Manfred, if there, there are good refugees and not so good refugees uh, to uh, take in in a, in a country, in a European country, uh, if people think uh, in terms of financially, of course, but also culturally in the, in the longer run? I wouldn't say they are good and bad refugees. They are refugees that are easier to be integrated than others, of course. The same is with migrants. Uh, we have to deal with that. But still, if somebody is persecuted on the basis of any of the criteria in the Geneva Refugee Convention, he or she has a right to be protected, a right to asylum. And uh, we should not distinguish in our asylum procedures between good and bad ones uh, in terms of can we actually integrate them. Uh, integration, of course, is a very important task, both in relation to refugees, but also in relation to migrants. For instance, I, I disagree with much of the, the, the European the European Union uh, common asylum and, and, and migration policy. For instance, I disagree with the Dublin II regulation. I disagree uh, with the fact that most uh, asylum seekers in all the time are not allowed to work, uh, which makes it much more difficult for them to actually integrate, etc. Um, but uh, I think it's our responsibility to make it as easy for them to integrate as possible. Uh, and then the, the distinction between the good and the bad ones might become perhaps a little bit, a little bit smaller. Um, but of course I should, um, I mean, we could go much further. It is of course today people are coming because of being smuggled by organized crime, uh, and that's a big problem. But again, as we have to be blamed very much ourselves because we limited migration because we thought after the end of the Cold War, whole of Russia and Eastern Europe would actually flood Western Europe. So we closed the door to legal migration, and by that we opened the asylum procedure as a way of avoiding this, and that of course also caused that organized crime came into the picture, and it's human trafficking and human smuggling is one of the most lucrative kind of business in the world. So I, th I think the, the, the point is it's not such an easy issue, and I, 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 I don't envy any Minister of Interior or Integration who has to, to, to deal with that. But I think we should break through this vicious circle of always getting more and more restrictive uh, and we should and being kind of pushed by right-wing and, and very much populist uh, parties. Uh, and I think we should say we have in Europe a responsibility also because of our own history. Uh, we have a specific responsibility towards those who are in need. Um, so before I let you uh, answer to this, I, uh, I would actually like to, you to also answer another question uh, which uh, Manfred took up earlier uh, about tolerance. Uh, and the question is, is there another way uh, to combat the uh, problems that are created by, it, by different cultures that are very different, living together, taking in refugees from places that are in need but are very different from us? Is there another way uh, to combat these problems than just uh, not taking those, but taking those? Yes. 
two things. First of all, to mix uh, immigrants and refugees, that is a political discussion. I know, a decision. I mean, if, if you, in, with refugees, also see, I mean, if you, if you equalize it with immigrants, then, of course, you use a certain tool to change the character of a country. And especially if you say that everyone in the world who is persecuted, in any sense, we had, at a certain point, we had a, we had a minister of um, integration who, uh, who said that everyone who was poor had the right to come to Denmark. Um, of course, this created quite some... She wasn't a minister for long, I have to say. But then, of course, she, and then, of course, she went to politicking and became a, a big shot there, because that was, that's where you go when you say that kind of stuff. And you, and you even acclaimed afterwards, right? <laughs> but 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 still move to strike. But still, uh, I mean that is politics, and I, I, I love. Of course, I love discussing politics, but I don't think there's any ethical consideration behind it. That is that is a wanted worldview, and, and I do not agree. I think that individual countries have the have the right to set uh, certain limits on who and. And, and, and what they want uh, in a character when it comes to immigration. I mean, even the United States have done that for, for, for decades, for centuries. Um, so uh, that is actually why we ended up being the most open country, because we, 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 we tried to open, but on the same time we had certain restrictions, which were harsh, on things that would challenge uh, how our society worked. And I think that's basically okay. On the other, uh, the other question that you're asking is, well, okay, let's assume that you have a multicultural society. Uh, how do you handle these problems then? I've only met one way, uh, which is an extreme way of the French way, uh, which is to consider everyone a citizen uh, of La République, and then to enforce it with discipline. Very harsh discipline. We have seen that certain schools in, in areas in Denmark where you have multicultural, uh, many, many people of different cultures, the only schools that actually do work and work well are the schools that impose a pretty harsh discipline and is very, very focused on the learning uh, in, the school, uh, in the schools, whereas all other schools doesn't work. Uh, and I don't know whether I like that so much. But uh, maybe it will end there anyway, so that would be the way to go. But uh, I think that's that's one of the things at least. So if it if it works, uh, maybe you have to do measures that you don't really uh, like in principle. Uh, I hear well, you say. Uh, yes. We have to relate to reality. <laughs> exactly. Um, I would like actually to ask if there are some questions uh, in the <laughs> Well, that was a stupid question. Uh, how, who has a question? Uh, yeah, let's just start by there. And I'll actually use the same thing that Samuel did, so I don't have to remember you all. I'll give you numbers. That's number one, number two, number three, four, five, six. Seven, eight. We have half an hour. Don't worry. Be short in your questions, and please ask questions uh, in the end. And uh, yes, we'll take it from there. I'll try to be as brief as possible. Uh, my partner from Bosnia and Herzegovina, senior Two questions. One for Professor Novak. Uh, talking about this thing you have learned, 
Uh, I was just wondering if you could give a brief commentary about the whole situation in Hungary, because I have a feeling that uh, you have to try really hard to get into EU, but once you get in, we, you're free, you don't have to do anything. You can have really, uh, pretty much fascist parties uh, marching around and telling whatever the hell they want to, and get away maybe with a slap on the wrist, at the best, and maybe just if you can give a brief comment about that. And for Mr. Pitt, um, glad to see you again. Uh, I have a question about uh, this, the aspect of culture. Um, I know it's hard to in integrate, but I come from a country where we have three factions with the same culture, yet we slaughtered each other very successfully. And um, what I would like to know is, I mean, what about war? Because it's one thing if you look, if you're an immigrant, if you're trying to achieve a better life, if you come from a fairly stable country, which is almost none in the world today, but it is a completely different thing if you are a war refugee fighting for your life, and then you come to a country, let's say like Denmark, and you, and then the only thing that you get is to spend, let's say, 13 or 14 years in an immigration center, which is, I apologize for the sentence, but a five-star concentration camp. So uh, I was just wondering, do you have any explanation about that? And thank you very much. Yeah, on the first question, I fully agree with you. The European Union has very high and fairly clear uh, conditions for entering the European Union, economic ones and political ones, including human rights. Uh, so you're screened very much before you enter the European Union, and once you're in, um, the possibilities of the European Union to actually criticize you for your human rights performance are fairly limited, not from the law, but in practice. Um, I can tell you Austria was for the first time targeted, was not really sanctions, but targeted uh, when we had a right-wing government uh, in 2000. Um, there were the sanctions and the Comité des Sages uh, saying that uh, this is violating the basic principles of the European Union. Um, and um, it, um, it led to certain changes at least, um, but it also led to the fact that Article 7 of the EU Treaty, uh, which foresees a procedure to actually at the end suspend certain membership rights uh, of countries would be possible, but it was never applied. It was uh, not applied to, uh, to Greece, it was not applied to Hungary. I am Vice President of the EU Fundamental Rights Agency in Vienna. We are always saying, I mean, we have so much evidence uh, about very, very dangerous racist policies of the Orban government, but uh, in particular much more of far, far right-wing um, skinheads and whatever groups. Uh, so action needs to be taken by the European Union, but it needs the Council, it needs the other governments, and they are not willing to do it. Um, so I, we, we strongly criticize that. Um, in fact, we can more rely on the European Court of Human Rights. But again, it's a question to what extent the judgments are actually implemented in practice. The EU would have much stronger possibilities to force governments to do something, uh, but they are extremely reluctant within their own, their own 28. So the EU is very strong in its human rights policies towards the outside but very weak towards the inside. Thank you, sir. Would you answer the second question? Yes, 
but also a small comment on this question. I mean, the only problem with Hungary is that you do not find any of the constitutional changes made in Hungary which you cannot recognize in some European consti uh, constitution. All, all, all of the aspects, you can find one of them in one of the European constitutions. And this is why this is also a greatly political matter. Uh, of course, you can always argue that the concentration of the changes makes it illegal, but I don't think that's a valid point. I don't think you must take the changes one by one, but I mean, that's another discussion. Um, and I know that some in my party actually disagrees with me on this. That's Jens Rohe, of course. I love to disagree with this guy. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, other, the other question on the, um, on, 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 um, on the, um, the refugees coming and staying for a very long time, most of them staying for a long time is actually because they are not here legally. I mean, um, very, very much. I mean, that, that's, that's a fact. And uh, I could also, of course, give a cultural explanation, which is easier because that's, I think, more truth-like. Uh, this country, in 1983, changed its immigration laws. And especially one person who later got convicted for uh, abuse of power, he said that the change of that law would change Danish society in a way that would be, that would render Danish society unable to change back. And he said that 400,000 people of not Danish uh, background would be here in 20 to 30 years. And he was ridiculized. All the leading cadres of society said he was crazy, he was nuts, uh, you couldn't trust what he said. But the problem is that he was actually right. So uh, today, when you see the whole immigration and refugee aspect, people, they will not tell you openly, but behind it, they will, they will be very skeptical towards uh, openness. Unfortunately, because uh, as an integration minister, I saw how hard it actually is to integrate into daily society. It is very hard. We are a tribe, and we've been for a thousand years almost. And it's, it's a tough call to come here and integrate. But that is the background. That is why you see people reacting to this. Because from 1983 and 5, this country was the most open country in Europe. And it changed very much. Number two. Um, Kurt Vesiner uh, from the board in Bosnia, I just wanted to, to throw to the panel, I mean, I, I'm not as optimistic as you are in terms of, I think, I think that the, we have a lot of evidence that the lessons have been painstakingly cataloged, identified, they're, it's applying them as a different matter, especially when it's hard, and, and I would say exhibit A because right now in Syria, and I thought that was the direction that we might end up. I mean, look at the European reaction to the very idea of doing strikes even piddling strikes that were being discussed uh, on Syria after a chemical weapons attack. This is a war that killed more than 110,000 people, which is more than the Bosnian war over three and a half years. Uh, and yet, the public reaction, the governmental reaction, was absolute horror at the idea of using power, and then relief at not using it. Uh, it's not the, so I'm not at all clear that the West has learned from the experience, not only that we've been talking about, but the experience that two of you referred to as sort of formative for yourselves. Uh, and I just like your reflections on that. Thank you. 
Manfred, would you start on the reflections on Syria, which is a very, very difficult matter, but we can take five minutes on it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Syria, as it developed in 2011, um, is a clear case for the responsibility to protect. Very similar to Libya, no question. At the beginning, we were talking about peaceful demonstrations against the Assad regime. And we had very, very tough media reaction, not from the very beginning, but uh, soon developing. And uh, that would have been the time to take action, not military action, but the whole possibility. If the Security Council would have been willing, under Article 39 of the UN Charter, to say, we consider this as a threat to international peace and security, Therefore, the Security Council can take action. We warn you, and we might take economic sanctions or whatever. And if the Russians would have been on board at that time, much of the budget, I'm 100% sure, could have been prevented. We all know it was the Russian Federation and to some extent China that prevented it from the very beginning. And then it developed into a full-fledged civil war with so many different factions. Um, And uh, and, uh, when President Obama finally, after the chemical weapons attack, said that uh, he might consider or threatening with military action, um, I was, and I was in in, in Libya, I was very, very clearly in favor of military action uh, because I think responsibility to protect is a very important new concept. At that time, I was against because you always have to uh, to really see what are the possibilities, what are the risks, and what are the benefits. And I I think the benefits were not. I think at that time, with military action, you would not have achieved very much, but you could have risked. Uh, uh, an armed conflict in the whole region. Uh, but I think to threaten was a good thing. Otherwise, the Russians would not have come on board. What we have now is a first agreement that the chemical weapons, and I should say Syria, is one of five countries in the world that are not parties or have not been parties to the chemical weapons convention. Now they are party, that means they have to destroy the chemical weapons. And I'm quite optimistic that that will be done, as others, the United States, Russia, etc., have done in the past, under the supervision of this monitoring body of the, of the United Nations in, in, in The Hague. Uh, and secondly, what is much more important, because of that, the Russian Federation, without losing its face too much, is to some extent on board. That means there will be talks, and I think the only way to solve this very, very difficult Syrian situation is by negotiations. And if in November the Geneva talks will happen, I hope, and of course it is important to get every individual player on board, that means Iran, that means Saudi Arabia, that means of course the Russian Federation and and others. If this will happen, then I think the threat with the military intervention by President Obama was a very, very successful thing. And I'm not agreeing with so many media in the United States and else who say now Obama is a coward. He's first threatening and then he's not doing anything. He's asking Congress, etc. I think President Bush probably would have 
not being a coward, and I don't know what the result of such military action would have been. I would be extremely skeptical. So I think Obama did the right thing, and I hope that we will find within a reasonable period of time uh, a solution at least to the, to the Syrian crisis. Um, sir, I know that uh, you were not among the politicians that didn't want a strike in uh, Syria, um, so uh, it's quite interesting to hear your view now that the situation has changed and uh, the Obama administration is not uh, fully, uh, going forward, at least not immediately with a strike, uh, but is now seeking a diplomatic path. How do you see uh, this new development? Well, I don't want to create a diplomatic incident, so I will try to moderate my words. But I must say that I find the last two and a half years in action shameful. Shameful. And I, I, I can tell you at a certain point I got a call from uh, uh, a very knowledgeable journalist on DR2. It's the most serious channel here in this country. <laughs> very, very serious. And they wanted me to come in late in the night and discuss what Denmark should do now that you could no longer count on the United States to support us. And I just listened to this young lady and I said, what are you talking about? But then I, then I actually listened to what she said. And, and, and this was a strange notion. It's the first time this notion at all has been discussed. And I think it says everything about the American administration. Okay, I created a diplomatic incident anyway. <laughs> um, we have lived through 10 years of active policy. Now we see the results of a passive policy. With millions of refugees, hundreds, 120,000 killed, and uh, a horrific uh, situation, especially for children. And I tell you, probably... Some here have been, but if you have ever been into a refugee camp, and I'm not talking about the Danish refugee five-star hotels that you're talking about, but truly refugee camps, and you talk to, to the victims there, then you know that this is the most terrible thing. And to see the world do nothing, I think, is quite honestly shameful. Um, and I think we have acted too little too late. I think there was, a, uh, there was a window of opportunity where we could have supported the Syrian opposition with weapons and with giving them a possibility to act. But now, of course, they have been radicalized. Many of them have been radicalized. And if you want to see hate speech, and if you want to see uh, racism, then try to look at, among other things, the Danish debate, but also the international debates on who the Syrian rebels were. There you will see hate speech. And you will see unbelievable words put up on people who actually basically were Democrats. But this was a given from the beginning, and I think it's just simply totally unacceptable. Uh, yes, I say, of course, I don't want to be misunderstood. I fully agree with you. It's a shame. It's terrible that the international community has not done what they should have done. But I think it is in this case certainly not the Western countries that are responsible. It is the Russian Federation full stop. Uh, and the alternative would be a unilateral intervention. And that's exactly uh, the idea of the responsibility to protect. And Kofi Annan was fighting very, very hard for this, is 
that we are not creating a unilateral possibility for China or Russia or the United States to intervene for humanitarian grounds whenever they see that fit to do. We need the Security Council. Um, so the Security Council was blocked. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I, I agree, it is a shame, it's terrible. Um, but in this case, I think it's difficult to blame the Western powers. This is also a learning from and, uh, and, and perhaps also, also to say, I mean, it's not true that nothing has been done. In the Human Rights Council, there were numerous resolutions, and I have never seen in the history of the United Nations that you had uh, a vote in the Human Rights Council for condemning Syria, for having very, very intensive investigative commissions where two of the permanent members of the Security Council, namely Russia and China, were totally outvoted. There was only one other country voting with them, and it was Cuba. All the others, Western countries, Latin American countries, African and Asian countries, Arab countries, they all voted in favor for condemning Syria. So Russia is really isolated. In the, in, also in the, in the General Assembly. But still, according to the UN Charter, they have a veto power in the Security Council. So we have to change what Kofi Annan wanted. We have to change the composition of the Security Council. That's what we need to do uh, in order to make the responsibility to protect a functioning strategy. But that's actually what annoys me about this debate, because it always ends up with being a, a structural debate about how the UN should be, or it's a question of the brilliance of the idea of removing the chemical weapons from Syria, whom are responsible for killing 1% of the people who have been killed. Yeah. It's the only alternative military. No, of course not. I mean, not only, but also. And I, don't, I, I mean, where we disagree is, I think that one thing we have learned is what can you do? Well, you should do what actually you are able to do. So how and that does not always include the so United Nations. So how many Nations. children and other refugees from Syria have you brought to Denmark? But that is not... That does, the problem is, well, actually, quite many. We actually, the, the, biggest, the biggest amount of refugee we, we receive right now is Syrian, and this has been done because our board of... Uh, ref, the refugee board has, has made the decision that everyone who reaches Danish borders they are granted the right of asylum, which I actually have been out supporting. It's but, 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 but it's very easy to say, what, how many have you taken if you do not solve the core problem, which is that people are being killed each day, then you can open up the borders, it will not matter while we are discussing UN structures. But you don't have to wait until they come to Denmark. You can go to the refugee camps that you have described in Jordan or in Turkey, and you can get quite many if I you want to help them. Yes, of course, but I do not necessarily see that as a, a reflection of humanity, and especially not of something that solves the crisis that these people are in. What and who would you use military action against in Syria to solve the problem? The problem is very simple, that this is a civil war. I think Herbert Kundig has actually written a lot about this. I do not agree in his conclusion, but his analysis very much so. And the, the, the trouble, I mean, what we could have done on an earlier stage is to support the democratic Syrian, the free Syrian army, basically, which could have done something, and it would have ended up in a situation that actually President Obama's spokesman, Jake Carney, began to talk about. Some months ago, he said, well, I don't think that President Assad will be the president of the whole of Syria, which was actually a point that was never debated in international, but this, that 
that is where we actually began to see like an Indian-Pakistan solution or something in that aspect. Is that cost-free? No. Everyone who studies history knows that it was a terrible process. But we could have supported a process which went that way. This Syrian debate is not over in the world, I can tell you, I reassure you of that. Uh, but uh, I would let the, the next questioner actually uh, come forward. I think number three is here. Hmm? It's a question I've been asking myself for many years, and I have considered it to be related to politics, to psychology, to philosophy, and possibly to morality. And it is this. We've heard stories, many stories, during the past few days. We've heard how vicious the Vichy regime in France was during the war. We've heard about the Polish experience. We've heard that we heard about Norway. We heard very interesting facts about Finland. Uh, we heard that even in Sweden, which was the recipient of the refugees, things were not very bad in life. We heard, of course, about the remarkable story of, uh, of Denmark and, and the rescue of uh, about 10,000 Asian Jews. But all of those stories, they are very different from each other. All of them come down to one very simple thing. We have got a bunch of bad guys We've got a bunch of good guys. Good guys helping, you know, whoever needs to be helped. The bad guys, whatever they do, to commit whatever bad they have to do. Uh, to put it another way, uh, the, the, the tragedy of all this was not that there was a bunch of bad guys. No. The tragedy of all this is not that there was a bunch, a bunch of bad guys who had the courage to be evil, mm. but there were millions of good guys who did not have the courage to do it. So my question is this. How can we explain that there were so many bad guys? Is it possible to do that? Is it possible to give an answer to that? It's a very, very good question. Uh, um, good guys disagree. Uh, uh, we all agree that we're all good guys, right? And these are the very good guys. No, no, I'm a bad guy. <laughs> That's why I'm here. Uh, who would answer first, uh, Manfred? Are you or sir? No, no, I can answer that. I mean, uh, this, now you said you went into morality and, and philosophy, but it's also a religious question. And I think that, I mean, evil and good are two forces in the world that will always be there, no matter what you do. But when I say that one should do what one can, and that is what we expect of people, it's nothing, uh, it's nothing more than taken out of Edmund Burke, who says that the only thing it takes for evil to win is for good men to do nothing. And since we live in the 21st century, good women also, because if not, they will be angry at me. So anyway, <laughs> but, but still, that is the point. And I mean, if you don't do anything, evil has its natural growth. And you can put that into a philosophical, uh, philosophical um, uh, point, you can put it into a political point, Trust me, I know about that. And or you can put it whatever. That's the fact. But do we kill the adversary to do good? No, you can also love him to death. I mean, that's that's a question of perspective. You wish it that good. Okay. Um, well, let evil go away. I'm I'm not believing in the uh, in the good guys, bad guys. Uh, I think it's political systems. It's um, um, it's. Uh, 
uh, I don't know, uh, one of the theater uh, plays that I was most impressed was Bert Brecht, Spitzköpfe and Rundköpfe. Mm -hmm. I don't know whoever has seen that. Uh, it's, uh, and it was in the 1930s. Uh, it was before really uh, everything started. Uh, just saying, if you divide people and those who have uh, actually a round head and those who have a, a less one, uh, and you manipulate them and you tell them those who have this kind of form of the heads, they are the bad guys and the other ones are the good guys, you can create hatred and you can create at the end a genocide. Um, so it's the political system, the manipulation that creates the structures and that's why what I try to say is uh, we don't have to work on the individual psychological level of creating only good people around the world. We have to develop political structures where this kind of uh, propaganda incitement cannot uh, pursue because there is freedom of press, there is a democratic system, there are others who stand up and say this is simply unacceptable what you are doing. And if we need, we have to use criminal law and prohibit this kind of hate speech uh, and, and, and parties that are based on, on, uh, on, on, on that. Um, so I'm, I, I'm not quite sure whether I really did respond to your question. It's powerful thought. Mm, yes, and it's a very, very long discussion that we're going to have for hours and hours, I know. So I'm yeah. going to actually go, uh, because I know that you can answer to this, but, but I want to have a last question. We only have four minutes left, so I might only have time for one question more, I know. Sorry, I saw you the last. <laughs> Who's number four? Hmm? Sorry? But you was the first to <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um, my name is Dominic Köhler, I'm a senior fellow from Germany last year and I have a question to Mr. Pim. You said um, in the beginning that you um, are very much in favor of universal human rights, um, but then you said it's okay to distinguish sort of between good immigrants and bad immigrants to shut the doors for certain refugees and to open the doors for other refugees. Um, I don't think that very much um, goes with your first statement that you um, are supporting universal human rights because if we um, go back to the um, aftermath of the Second World War, Hannah Arendt um, formulated her theory of the right to have rights. Um, and that boils down to um, having the right to be part of a state that actually can protect you. And if I'm a refugee fleeing to Denmark, um, and you saying, well, um, I like universal human rights, but in your case, um, we don't let you in because you don't bring the necessary um, economic impact because it's too difficult for you to integrate. Don't you think that's a basic conflict um, with supporting universal human rights and then shutting off borders? A fairly short answer. Mm. I said I, I, I didn't make this distinction between bad and good immigrants. That was actually Poland. Uh, I just said that it is within the rights of a country to decide who should be in, allowed into its territory. And I think that's a basic, basic, basic right. Also for the people living in the country that is that. So you can go into a property right discussion, you can go whatever, culturally right discussion, you can go all the way. And this is a question of conflicting rights, but I have not yet seen any country in the world 
who is just saying that anyone has the right to come no matter what. I haven't seen that, and I don't believe it's a human right. Just to go where you want, or, uh, where you want, when you want. I've never seen it. What about the Geneva Convention on <coughs> Human Rights? Doesn't it says that that when you are in need, you are supposed to be received? That's the basic. <laughs> but I mean, that is the law of asylum, and of course we have that law also here. But uh, still, there are considerations, and it's legally. I mean, this this is a legalistic question. I have not seen yet one country that opens up all its borders for whomever they want to come when they want to come. So of course, and that is why I'm, I'm actually stating that this is an ideological question, because this is an ideology that wants to remove the national states. And peace be with it, but please state that this is politics. It's not something you can take out of a judicial uh, objective uh, uh, function. Um, I have a permission to ask. Uh, I don't see anybody falling asleep. I know your deadline. Can we proceed for three minutes? Yes. Okay, thank you. Then I have two last questions. Actually, this woman was actually the first one, but I didn't see you because you were on that side. Um, I couldn't see you. Two questions more. Thank you. Uh, well, I mean, my question might sound quite naive, but uh, I just have to give a short intro why I'm asking this. Uh, so for these two days, we spoke, three days, we spoke about horrific events, uh, terrible events that took place during the Holocaust, and many uh, things that might lead, uh, that might be the reason why we couldn't prevent it, such as people didn't, were not informed, if, uh, there was censorship, information traveled slowly, and so on. So uh, ever since uh, and ever since the Holocaust, for the last 50 years, we keep repeating never again. But as we speak today, possible uh, genocide is happening in Syria, as I mentioned. So just uh, to wrap it up, uh, in the meantime, last 20 or so years, we had genocide in Cambodia, in Rwanda, in Bosnia, and uh, now recently, in, 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 uh, the, the kind of crimes are keeping happening. So, um, uh, the war in Rwanda started via radio. Uh, the war in Bosnia was almost like a reality TV show. It was like 24-7 on TV. Uh, international organizations were established, OIC, UN, Red Cross, everyone was in Bosnia, everyone was in Rwanda. Uh, humanitarians uh, and altruists all around the world were demonstrating, asking the governments to help, uh, inviting everyone to get involved. Uh, this is like two hours of Copenhagen. Shortly, I think. So that's, I'm just quoting all this to ask my question is, uh, is the question to the name of this session, did you hear prior? So my question is, what did we learn? Because I have the impression that whatever we have learned so far, it doesn't work. Okay, whatever we learned so far hasn't worked, uh, Manfred. Maybe this is a final question. Mm? Uh, <laughs> um, no. I'm, I'm, I would like to end with a more positive. Uh, positive and optimistic. Uh, you know, I come to a country where we say every 50 years there is a war, so we expect <clears throat> No, okay, but. Uh, somebody take the microphone. <laughs> I think uh, within these uh, almost 70 years now, after 1945, we have advanced more than anybody could have imagined in 1945. Uh, on the one hand, via the United Nations, but also many regional organizations, we have human rights is one of the most important new ideas that is really part of international politics, uh, part of international relations, part of uh, peace operations, etc. 
Um, that um, we failed in Bosnia and Herzegovina or in ex-Yugoslavia uh, has to do with the fact that at the end of the Cold War, things changed and we didn't realize how much minority conflicts and nationalism was filling a certain vacuum that was left after the end of communism. So communists mutated into uh, internationalists and we didn't have at that time the necessary organizations. Ex-Yugoslavia was not a member of the Council of Europe. Uh, of course, much less of the European Union. And the European Union, Maastricht was 92. So we had just the beginning of the European Union with the beginning of a common, uh, um, uh, common foreign and security policy. Um, so it was in a very, very difficult time. Secondly, as I said, there were these old alliances. Uh, but still, I think we have learned a lot. And we have not left, or we have not left Bosnia totally alone. Uh, at the end, there was the Dayton Peace Agreement. I said it was the Clinton administration and not the Europeans that, uh, that, that are responsible for this. And after the Dayton Peace Agreement, the biggest peace operation in history was launched in Bosnia. We had 4.5 million Bosnians and 60,000 heavily armed NATO troops <coughs> immediately ended the war, they immediately provided a security environment and then capacity building in order to establish um, a, a, a post-conflict situation in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I know there are many problems, etc. When a similar uh, when the Serbs, Milosevic and the Serb Minister of Interior started a similar ethnic cleansing operation vis-à-vis -vis the Kosovo Albanians in 1998-1999. Again, the Russians blocked uh, an, an action by the UN Security Council and at that time NATO, so the Western countries, took unilateral action. It was a violation of international law, but it was legitimate because otherwise we would have seen a similar genocide against the Kosovo Albanians. So again, there was an intervention and uh, it was very, very difficult to find the final status for Kosovo, but now we are very close to Kosovo independence. So we can't say we totally failed, but nevertheless, I agree with you that this was certainly in the post World War II, Europe, the most serious case of human rights violations, and, uh, and uh, I, I'm terribly sorry for what happened. I, I have seen it from, uh, from one of the first days with my own eyes. I, I, I know what happened. I, I have been judged for eight years in Bosnia, and it was a terrible situation, but uh, it would be unfair to say nothing happened, and now it is really up to the Bosnian politicians. Uh, particularly in the Republic of Srpska, not to hold all of Bosnia hostage to, to, to these two entities, etc. So, uh, again, I would say, and I again would think that another Bosnia would not be possible in the, in the, in the next future in, in Europe. I think we also have learned the lessons from Srebrenica uh, and from and from Kosovo. So I think we are, we are learning and learning and improving as imperfect we might still be. And you certainly had boots on the ground in that uh, particular period when all these things happened. Uh, a last closing yes. remark from, uh, from you, son. Uh, please, uh, yes, very, I'll short. I'll do it very short. Very um, short. I think that instead of looking from 
from the, the outside in, no, the inside out. I think we should look from the outside in. And during all the travels I went through, when I discussed with people, all the progressives, what did they want? They wanted liberty, they wanted rule of law, they wanted democracy. And what did the reactionaries don't want? Exactly that. And I think that the progressive forces, although it's sometimes it has its backlash, I think the progressive forces are winning. And I think it is because we have learned, and because our arguments are clear and strong, then we can disagree on the things that we are discussing, but that has nothing to do with actually that kind of evil that we are speaking of. Yeah. So I'm very optimistic, and I think that the reason for which Eastern Europe came back, Soviet Union fell, even the Arab Spring, which is way too early to, to deem now, it is all a consequence of actually this worldview winning. Thank you so much.